From high atop Feibusch Media World Headquarters in Rochester, New York, this is the Top of the Tower podcast. I'm Scott Feibusch. We are brought to you this week by Shively Labs. Shively Labs is a division of Howell Laboratories. Shively is a proud employee-owned company with over 50 years of expert antenna and filter design and manufacturing. And by Yellowtech for broadcasters, podcasters, and content creators. Yellowtech offers solutions for clean, efficient studios with the Mika mic arms and monitor supports, clean audio from Yellowtech's IXM recording microphone and USB sound cards, along with its compact mixer, the Intellimix. To learn more, go to yellowtech.com. We have a lot to talk about this week. Uh, we are going to get to the big news of the last week and a half, of course which is the latest implosion of WBAI and Pacifica in New York. We'll talk about that. But we are also going to uh, bring you up to speed on the rest of our trip to Texas as we were headed down for the uh, radio show that took place in Dallas a few weeks ago. Uh, We are actually right now on our way, if you're listening to this, quote, live, unquote, uh, to New York City for the uh, Audio Engineering Society conference that continues through this weekend as well as the NAB New York show, and we'll bring you more from that next week. But uh, we do have this one interview to bring you from Texas. Uh, One of the stops that we made in a very interesting tour around the great state of Texas was in College Station. And that's not normally someplace you would think of as a major radio destination. But I thought it was important to put it on the agenda, and here's why. There is a uh, very significant small market radio group there called Bryan Broadcasting. Uh, It's not a very large group. They have the Heritage AM station there, WTAW. They have a a second AM that was an offshoot of WTAW during the expanded band era. And they've got, uh, I think, four FM stations uh, plus another AM that feeds a translator. You'll hear all about it uh, in our conversation. But I wanted to stop there in particular uh, to meet a fellow named Ben Downs. Uh, Ben is a veteran Texas broadcaster, one of the funniest guys in radio, and also one of the most prominent small market broadcasters around. Uh, as you'll hear in the discussion that we had with him, one of the things that, uh, that is very important to him is being visible as a voice for small market radio. And we're going to hear from him uh, about why he takes uh, such a major role with uh, organizations like the NAB and uh, the Broadcasters Idea Bank and others. So that's all coming up in just a moment. But before we get to the interview with Ben Downs, uh, a few words about this situation that is happening right now in New York City at WBAI. This is Pacifica Across America on 99.5 FM, WBAI, New York. Now, that is not the station ID that uh, the local staff of WBAI and the local station board want to be hearing right now. That is an ID that first appeared uh, kind of unexpectedly uh, just over a week ago on a uh, Monday morning when all of a sudden the National Board of Pacifica Foundation took over operations of WBAI from the local management, uh, including its longtime general manager and program director. Uh, The locks were changed on the studio in Brooklyn. The program feed was rerouted to Pacifica headquarters in Oakland, and this national feed called Pacifica Across America was very hastily created and put into play uh, right there on 99.5 in New York. Now, if you've paid any attention at all to WBAI and 99.5 in New York, you know that this has been a story for literally decades, going back to the 1970s, of tension between local managers uh, in New York City and the Pacifica board in Berkeley uh, as they have fought back and forth over who's really going to control this radio station. Uh, It's about to celebrate its 60th anniversary under Pacifica. It had been a commercial station until 1960, it was operated uh, sort of as, as a hobby almost 
uh, by a local New York businessman named uh, Louis Schweitzer. He donated it to Pacifica in 1960 so that they could take what had previously been just their West Coast programming, which had been heard in Berkeley and Los Angeles, and bring it to New York City. This, of course, at a time when FM stations in New York City uh, were literally close to worthless. You could actually still apply for a brand-new FM facility serving New York and have a fair chance of getting it at that point. So this was not a a huge dollar donation. Uh, This was more a labor of love. Over the years, however, of course, the value of a full-class B FM station on a commercial frequency in New York uh, soared exponentially. Uh, At one point, back around, let's say, the turn of the century and for a few years afterward, uh, you could probably have taken that 99.5 facility if you were the one who controlled it, And you could have gotten somewhere well north of $100 million for it from commercial broadcasters looking to expand. From what we understand, all kinds of offers were, in fact, presented to Pacifica. They had opportunities, had they so chosen, uh, to sell the station off, maybe move to a slightly lesser facility in the non-commercial band, still reach a lot of their audience. But that wasn't going to happen for a number of reasons. First of all, at that point... Pacifica was still able, basically, to keep the lights on. Sure, there were struggles between the local station board and national over who would control programming. This went back as far as the 1970s, uh, when there were actually armed insurrections in the transmitter room at Empire State Building uh, as people fought for control of who would actually get to program the, the transmitter up there. But the station was still at least vaguely stable, and that has changed quite dramatically now in the ensuing years. Uh, In particular, the station started to be unable to pay its monthly rent up at the Empire State Building. And the debt started piling up, and uh, the current ownership of the Empire State Building wasn't willing to just keep carrying that debt indefinitely. And uh, so all of a sudden, there were court cases, and there was the very real possibility that there could be some kind of foreclosure of this license and of station assets. And so 18 months ago, and mark that date very carefully, 18 months ago uh, in April of 2018, uh, just before the start of the NAB show out in Las Vegas, all of a sudden there was a surprise resolution with the, with the help of Public Radio Capital uh, and with the help of the Durst Organization, which controls the rival big transmitter sites in New York, One World Trade Center and Four Times Square, Durst stepped forward and said, hey, you know what, we will uh, we will build out a new transmission facility at uh, at four times square that will be substantially equal to what WBAI has already from Empire State Building, and we'll let them move over here. We'll help arrange to, to make that move happen uh, in exchange for Pacifica taking this loan through Public Radio Capital uh, and agreeing to begin repaying the money that it owed that had been paid off to settle the debt with the Empire State Building. That was about $1.8 million. There was additional money that the local station board had continued to owe to the national organization in Berkeley. That, of course, created all kinds of tension within the organization because the other local stations, which at this point are Berkeley, Los Angeles, and then also Houston and Washington, D.C., by themselves were a little bit more financially stable, still had a a little bit better listener base and better revenue than New York. And so they have been pushing consistently to try to get New York either in better hands or uh, off Pacifica's back altogether. So in theory, this kind of resolved things, and in theory, things were going to get stabilized in New York. And in theory, 18 months after that loan was made, the first payments were going to start coming due. Well, that was October 5th, and it was on October 7th, the first weekday after October 5th that Pacifica National made its move. Now, the argument from Pacifica National seems from the outside to be a fairly rational one. They have this important asset in New York City. It continues to be a drain on the rest of the organization. 
It either has to find a way to, to carry its weight or something has to change there. All makes sense until you remember we're dealing with WBAI and Pacifica in New York. And so, of course, the moment this happened, the lawsuits started to get filed on the, on the local side of things. Now, it helps perhaps to think of this as a number of different organizations all at once, because there is, of course, the federal broadcast license for WBAI, which ultimately is a federal entity and which ultimately is controlled by the Pacifica Foundation as the name on the license in Berkeley. So in theory, at least on the federal level, there is no question that it's the Pacifica Foundation in Berkeley that has the right to decide what happens with the license. The local business unit of WBAI, however, is a different story because state law apparently comes into play. And remember, I'm not a lawyer, not offering legal advice here, but apparently state law comes into play here with respect to issues uh, such as whether or not you can just lock people out without telling them that uh, they've been dismissed and giving them notice. Uh, and also uh, potentially with the whole issue of donor intent, which has been a big deal at uh, other listener-supported radio stations over the years, especially where colleges get involved, uh, where there's this question of if listeners have given money, can the licensee just unilaterally say, well, we're going to get rid of the license and use it for something else? So that initially looked to be the battleground. There was initially a restraining order that was issued that uh, would have told Pacifica, hey, you have to take the locks off the door, restore the local programming. Pacifica National came back and fought that off, and with the exception of a couple issues involving actual uh, pay and benefits to employees, uh, was able, at least temporarily, to continue programming the Pacifica Across America feed. And then last Sunday night, things changed again, and here's where we have potentially, I think, entered the worst possible timeline for anybody who wants to actually see this come to some kind of happy resolution. Because now there is the question of who actually controls the Pacifica Foundation at the national level. And because the Pacifica board is made up of a rather large number of stakeholders, including local station board members from across the country, there were members of the WBAI local station board who, notwithstanding having been dismissed, insisted they still claimed a vote on the board and held what was essentially a rival vote over the phone on Sunday night uh, to try to reverse everything the Pacifica National had done. And so here we are with those two sides fighting. At last check on Wednesday, it was still the national organization uh, out of Berkeley controlling things and still running the Pacifica Across America feed, but there, there have been rallies and there have been press conferences and there is another hearing that is coming up on Friday in New York. And just all kinds of things going on that could tip the balance of this one way or another and uh, are more likely, if anything else, to just keep holding it up in court indefinitely. And in the meantime, what is at stake in 2019? That's not even really clear. Uh, the, the broadcast license that once would have been worth well north of $100 million uh, clearly is not right now. And there are some arguments going back and forth about what really is it worth. Uh, my guess uh, from a semi-expert perspective, is maybe $30 million, and that's based on the fact, first of all, uh, that there's just not as much demand. Uh, at one time, you would have said, sure, it would have made sense for EMF, for K-Love, to come in and spend a lot of money to get this standalone signal in New York. Well, guess what? They got the other one. They got WPLJ. They don't need it as badly anymore if they need it at all. A couple other groups that are out there, uh, most notably iHeart and also Entercom, uh, are full up. They have their five FM signals. They don't need 99.5 to fill out their maximum number of signals in the market. For just about anybody else, coming in as a standalone FM in New York is extremely difficult. Now, would somebody like a WNYC want to come in and have a second FM signal 
uh, either to improve their WQXR classical signal or to do something more local alongside the more national stuff on their 93.9? Yeah, conceivably. But that all assumes that Pacifica would actually sell. It's not clear that Pacifica even now has any intention of selling if they don't absolutely happen to, if they don't absolutely have to. At the national level, again, they're still saying they want to restore some kind of local programming, but with enough of a listener and, and supporter base to actually pay the bills. How do you find that? Boy, that's a good question right now, uh, especially on a frequency that has been through this much turmoil uh, and has been damaged this much in the public eye. Remember, people who have had access to the numbers have have told us that the, the, the weekly cube for WBAI in recent years has been only about 76,000 people. 76,000 people, even just sampling that 99.5 channel out of 18 million people in the in the signal area that it reaches. Is that a worthwhile use of the frequency? It doesn't seem so from this end. Can they do something more with it? Sure, they could. Can everybody get together on one page and make that happen? Given the history of WBAI, that uh, doesn't look very likely, to put it very mildly. So that's where we are now with WBAI. Welcome your thoughts about it, too. And, of course, we will be keeping an eye on all of this as it develops and uh, hoping for something better and local and better supported on the airways of New York City. So on with our interview this week. Uh, Again, it is with Ben Downs uh, from Bryan Broadcasting in College Station, Texas. And honestly, before we knew, I kind of expected that, uh, you know, Bryan Broadcasting would be out somewhere in some low-slung building out in some Texas field by Towers. And in fact, it is it is not. It's up on the upper floor uh, of a uh, shiny glass-walled uh, bank building that's right by the side of the main bypass highway, Highway 6, that runs through Bryan and nearby College Station. And uh, you ride what uh, Ben himself describes as the world's smallest elevators up to the top floor of this building, and lo and behold, there is a very interesting operation. It's radio stations in a couple of different forms. There are the uh, local secular stations that serve Bryan and College Station and uh, a couple of outliers as well out to the east. Then there's also a group of Christian radio stations that run under the same roof, commercial Christian radio stations, an AM with a translator, uh, and an FM that does contemporary Christian. And then he's got a publishing arm, too, and we talked to him about that, too. He puts out bridal magazines and lifestyle magazines, and that's a whole other revenue stream uh, that he builds into this into this business. It's a fascinating, fascinating place uh, and kind of unexpected in a market as small as Bryan and College Station, Texas. So without further ado, here is the conversation we had sitting up there on the top floor of that building overlooking Highway 6 uh, with Brian Broadcasting's very own Ben Downs. Ben Downs, one of the uh, more legendary small market radio groups in the country. You laugh, but I mean, people people know about Brian Broadcasting here in College Station, Texas. I've looked forward to, to coming here and visiting you for quite some time and uh, and happy to get the chance to see it. Uh, so we've we've walked around your stations. You've got you got a little everything here. You've got country You've got a, a commercial Christian contemporary. You've got more country. You've got sports. You've got news talk. We've got pop. We've got Spanish. We got it all, and a classic country that uh, has been really popular. And magazines, magazines, and digital. What more could you ask for? This is not. I mean, this is not strictly a radio group here. And you've got. Uh, you're just showing us. It was a hundred and forty some page bridal magazine that you put in. We do bridal magazines. Well, it, it's a. This is a college town. Uh, Texas A&M University is located here. It's sixty five thousand students, and when you have that many students, as you can imagine, uh, a bridal magazine is going to go over much bigger than a retirement magazine would. 
So let me ask you about that. It's a college town. It's a younger population. I was I was down at the coffee house visiting a friend last night. It was packed with students. I didn't necessarily. I mean, everybody had earbuds in. I don't know if any of them were listening to radio. Where where are we generationally with with that audience? You know, there was um, there was a there has been a bifurcation of the audience. Do you want a, a jukebox? Does the listener want just more music and nothing else? Or does your uh, audience want local news and sports and weather and hear about the Aggie games and, and things like that? The audience divided. And what we do and what radio does in general is provide – we're not as good of a jukebox as we are a local news or a local information source. And that's really what we have hung our hat on for a long time. If somebody just wants to listen to music, I think we probably are a second choice. But if you want to know what the weather is or how other people thought the Aggies played football this weekend, we're where you need to go for that. Obviously, just having the Aggies franchise in this town by itself is, is enormous. It's it's a popular uh, brand uh, for sure. We've um, we have both uh, English and Spanish language play by play here, and that's been a good thing for us. Uh, it doesn't come free, but we uh, we are able to get the rights to it, and we have we have been running it for uh, probably a dozen years now. Your Heritage AM station here, WTAW, started out literally a century ago now at the university. It. Uh, First went on the air as 5YA back 1919. I think we showed you the picture a few minutes ago of our uh, of the transmitters and, and studio site for the station when it was an experimental station. Then it converted over to WTAW in 1922, and we've kept the callers. It's moved all over the place because you know the history of AM radio is you weren't assigned a frequency at the start. You just kind of came on the air and you shared with people you might interfere with and I have the the first very first license that the station was issued and the things that were important back then you just smile and look at they wanted to know what kind of grounding system that the studio and antenna had they wanted to know what means you used to disconnect the grounding system they wanted to know what size of wire you used to disconnect the grounding system it just just things along that line and looking at the um the card file that the FCC keeps on the station, they, back in the day, they literally kept up with everything. There would be entries in there that WTAW was going to sign on the air from 7 p.m. until 8 p.m. to cover the senior dance. And uh, there would be a basketball game on a Saturday, and it would be listed that they were going to sign on the air to cover the basketball game. It, it It's fascinating. Uh, to send a telegram to Washington to say, yeah, we're going to operate extra hours or simulcast with. Mm-hmm. And, and we were sharing frequencies with other stations. We would clear with them that we were going to be using the frequency. So if it's all right with you guys, we'd like to broadcast from the dance this weekend. I see a lot of those going through the history cards of, you know, there will be a presidential address and this daytimer wants permission to stay on till 930 Eastern wartime. To- mm-hmm. Eastern wartime. Yes. It, and it's, it is, it is an interesting thing. We 
of course, because we're radio broadcasters, we love to complain about the FCC, even though right now we probably have the friendliest FCC we've had in decades. But uh, you know, compared to what uh, they had to go through in the 40s and 50s, we don't have to do anything. We got nothing right now. So we're, we're good. So let's talk FCC a little bit, because you've been in the forefront of a, a bunch of different waves of technological development. WTAW was one of the first and arguably maybe the most successful AM to transition to the expanded band to go from 1150 to 1620 back in the 90s. You've done HD subchannels. You've been doing translators. We'll talk a little bit more in a minute about uh, about all digital AM. What What's the value to you of, of being right out there on the, on the cutting edge of that in a market like this? If you're going to be in the business, you've got to do this. Uh, you've, got to be, you've got to be on the edge of what the technology of the business is going to be and the direction it's going to be heading. Um, the expanded band, I have, I've been surprised to discover other people have not been successful with it. We've been very successful with it. It's, uh, I mean, it would kill us if we lost our expanded band. I had a chance, though, to go through, and, um, you know, there are, I, I think there are 23 stations that still have their core band and their expanded band station on the air. And I went through them. I was making a presentation to FCC staff. And I went through and I came up with the formats that each of those stations had on those expanded band and core band pairs. And they're formats that you're not going to find. People were, we, we have one of the few mainstreams, uh, mainstream formats. Most of them were uh, foreign language, they were religious, they were minority programming. They're, there's, they're, if they were to go away, there's not a line of people waiting to do Korean language broadcasting in the northwestern corridor of the United States. There are a lot of formats that would just simply disappear if those stations were to disappear. Now, our our uh, situation here is our WTAW on sixteen twenty expanded band. It was it's a very good. It's worked out for us well. It's either our number one or number two biller as time goes on. The um, uh, HD, that was strictly, uh, if you're going to be in the business, you've got to be seeing where the business is going. If you're going to stay in it, you've got to do it. And it's worked out well for us, especially on our FM station on KNDE. We have, at one point, we had uh, all four of the HD channels lit up. We have three now. HD2 is a classic country station that's repeated on a translator at 97.7. HD3 is Radio La Jefa, which is our Spanish-language station, which is repeated on a translator at 102.7. So that's worked out well for us, too. They're, both of them are successful stations. They have good ratings, and it, it looks good for the future there. It's probably my wife uh, dinging me on my phone right there. The... Um, on the on the AM, it, it it we did it primarily from a technical standpoint. We just we wanted to see what it was like. We wanted to and we wanted to be able to talk about it. And instead of saying, "Well, you know, it's going to be all this occupied bandwidth and noisy and all that," we wanted to know if it really was. And in some places, the hybrid. If you talk to the people at Ubiquity, they'll tell you that the hybrid mode that we have now is was not intended to be there forever. It was always a transition into all digital for AM, and I found that to be the case. The 
station, the, the, the system is relatively fragile. It does drop out, and it is, it is technically difficult to keep it up and going. Uh, we've up, upgraded and put the new stuff in, and we've got the new, um, the new level of exciter and all. But it's still, it still tends to drop here and there where it shouldn't, and it, it is a fragile system. We petitioned the FCC to allow us to go all digital to use the MA3 mode. And it's not as big a deal as you would think it would be because every HD radio that's been sold in the United States, that's been sold in the United States, picks that up. So even if you don't know it, if you've got an HD radio in your car, you've got an all-digital AM HD receiver. An all-digital AM receiver is there as well. It uh, just automatically switches over and picks it up. It's forward compatible that way. Uh, the people at Ubiquity will tell you that, uh, or Xperia now, will tell you, that's because I'm old. Anyway, the people at Xperia will tell you there are 60 million cars that have HD radios in them. And as the folks in um, in Maryland will tell you also, uh, Frederick, Maryland, the, all, the only all-digital station in the United States, what do you want to do? Do you want to take your chance with the 25% HD penetration that's out there? or take your chance with the 10% of people who still choose AM radio first. And I petitioned the FCC for that. Uh, It got fast-tracked really before I had any idea that it would, and we had a good number of comments about it and all, but I, I I still sent some pushback from staff about it, and that surprises me because... um, it's what it's been well tested. The NAB has run it through the paces. You know, a year or two years. David Layer was out on the road doing tests with all digital, and the people at Xperia have tested it to a fairly well. And they continue to upgrade the system. They you know keep changing the software to make it work a little better here, a little better there. And I don't know. The AM is so noisy. The AM band is so noisy. It is so difficult to listen to it, especially at night. And I have, unfortunately, said this to staff uh, at the FCC. What else have we got? What else can we do to get rid of all that noise? And there is no answer to that. There is nothing else we can do. We're not going to pull back all those iPhone chargers and make them uh, be noise-free now. All we've got is digital for AM. So if we're serious about revitalizing am we can keep moving us over to fm like we're doing with translators or we can actually fix what we're doing with am and as long as it's voluntary i don't see i don't see the problem i don't understand the pushback but that's that's the way the world works and i realize as i've said many times no today doesn't mean no tomorrow and we'll keep asking because uh, i i think eventually the point will be made that what else you got and we don't have much what don't people realize you know there's a perception i think in some corners of the industry that the fcc is is aloof that they don't listen i mean you you file these petitions you get heard in washington what don't people realize about about fcc staff and about their willingness to to actually listen to broadcasters they'll listen to you especially um we have three commissioners right now who listen to broadcasters more than anybody else, but they have, they have competing obligations. For example, talking to staff about the quality of 
AM receivers, you'll say, I have said before, well, you guys have the authority and the power to uh, require that these receivers be better. And they don't think they do. And they believe that if they were simply to say, okay, from now on, we want 20 kilohertz reception on these things, and we, we want to you know, have noise canceling and all, they think that their position is, not they think, but they, their position is that the Congress would slap their hands and tell them, nope, you don't get to do that. My argument back is, how many times have we changed the TV standards? But again, the point is, is that Congress authorized that. So, you know, they, they have to, and it's, and it's not just broadcasters, you know. Uh, there are the people pushing them on the 5G side for spectrum. Uh, there are people on the LPFM and the non-commercial side pushing them for spectrum. And then Ben comes in and he has some bright idea about what needs to be done. It's, it's not that they're against us. It's just that they have a, a lot of competition for, for the time and for the effort that they, that they have at, at, up there in D.C., I walked in one day to talk to one guy at the commission, and I sat down at a conference table, and there were eight people there. I mean, they all listened. They We argued a little bit back and forth, but they all listened. They nodded at the right place. I, I haven't found them to be aloof. Um, I just, you know, sometimes, sometimes the answer to a prayer is no, and sometimes the FCC just has to say, not now. I've been pleasantly surprised. You know, I was doing a lot of filings on the various translator petitions, and you know, I was pleasantly surprised that I wrote fairly long filings, and lo and behold, they got mentioned in footnotes. Somebody, whether they agreed with me or not, was at least reading. They do read them. Uh, it's, every now and again, I'll, I'll bump across something I've said in a footnote, and I admit I'm a little terrified. What did I say? And, but you know, the, trans, the whole translator thing, that what better gift do you have for small and medium market AM stations? The big guys are still are still sweating it, but in the small and medium markets where there was room for a translator, it is the solution. Uh, my daytimer, I'm not worried about having a daytime AM anymore down the hall. One of my stations is a daytimer, and I don't worry about that anymore because I've got a translator, and I'm just going to – I probably will leave the AM alone, leave it on the air, of course. That's the rule. But I'll promote it on the uh, on the air, and I'll promote it in trade I – mean, not trade – but in advertising and all. I'll promote that as the FM. Um, and all of my AMs right now are, are being dual promoted, you know, AM dial position and FM dial position. It It's the solution. It's – cleans up the noise, and it solves the problems we all dealt with about coverage at night. Got your new signal about 20 miles south of here in Navasota, where you put a translator on that gets fed by an AM up here in College Station. That's a long story how that happened. Um, for, for protection reasons, for backstop reasons, we moved to 1550 from a small town, Navasota, to College Station. But we wanted to make sure that we still covered the people in Navasota. We're old school broadcasters. We believe in live and local, and we believe in local news and all. And when when we moved out of Navasota, there wouldn't have been a daily newscast anywhere down there for those people. So one of the th- first things we did was we discovered there's a knoll that ran right through the middle of town on the AM. And so we began pushing to be able to locate a translator down there. And that's what we have now. 
We have a translator on the air in Navasota. We bill it as Navasota News and and Willie fifteen fifty and. We uh, do. We have a couple of guys down there doing news and live stuff, and it's you know, it, we don't make a lot of money on it, but the people in Navasota sure do like being able to hear the obituaries and what the school board did last night. It's becoming a rare commodity in a lot of places. I know I picked up. There's a weekly paper down there too. Is print on that kind of level still a factor in competition for you? Oh sure, everybody's everybody's competition. If they're especially if they're local, that one's a weekly, and it you know so there's it loses a lot of timeliness with that. We on the other hand are every day, and so we're there. And if it's something if something big happens, uh, gosh, I've always wanted to say this: you'll hear it first right here. You have a reputation in the industry as being you know a major producer of awards here. We saw your Texas Association of Broadcasting Awards. You've won Marconi's. You've won Crystal's. You're obviously very active in, in a lot of industry areas with, with NAB and with, with Idea Bank. What's the, what's the value to you of, of working in a, in a broader industry context outside of just here locally in College Station and Bryan? I don't know. Um, it, it's when you're dealing with... Um, when you're dealing with station awards, it's nice to know that some that it's sort of a test. Are you really as good as you think you are? And so you enter an award, uh, you enter something, and you get a national award for it, and you can say, okay, I, I guess we're on the right track here. Uh, when you compare us to other stations our size in the in the state and in the country, okay, we we won an award for that, so we, we we're doing okay. It's a it's a good way to see how you measure up to other to other groups. The rest the rest of it is kind of like I got back to with the technology. If you're going to play in the sandbox, you need to play in the sandbox. You need to uh, because I am old and because I am local. We are the last locally owned media in this whole town um, because we bring a unique we bring a unique perspective there there's all the corporate radio in the world and and god bless them they bring a lot of tonnage when it comes to influence in washington dc and uh you know getting getting things done but i think it's important that people also know we exist out there people like us that are local broadcasters and still do live and local and uh if you know fortunately i've got a great staff that provides cover so I can disappear for a couple of days and go to D.C. and do something. But it's um, I, I think you just if you're if you're going to try to have an industry that you can live and work in, then you've got to try to help shape that. I always like to try to ask this uh, at some point in an interview, especially with people who have been around the block in this industry for a while. What when did you get bit by the bug? How did you get into this? Oh, I, it's always been there. I went on the air when I was 14 years old. I uh, I took my third-class license on November 2nd, 1968. That was the first day I could take the test. And I went on the air November 4th, 1968. So I, it's always it's always been there. And, and, you know, I've been in this market for a long, long time. I just like being in a market where, where you, it's hands-on. 
I can, you can affect change in your town. And if somebody needs help, you can bring the, the weight of the radio station to bear on that. I'm, I'm fortunate that um, uh, Bill Hicks is uh, our partner here and uh, the operating, uh, the, the, the managing partner. And um, it's, you know, it's, we're we're lucky that uh, we have the freedom to do that kind of stuff here. It just you talk about getting bitten by the bug. I guess it was started at an early age and hasn't let up since. You were actually just wanting me to say it's a lack of ambition on my part, weren't you? It's a good line. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It's a good line. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the tour. I look forward to uh, seeing you in Dallas at the radio show in a couple of days. Yeah, I'm looking forward to being there as well. And our thanks again to Ben Downs for taking that time to talk with us here on the Top of the Tower podcast. We look forward to talking to you, too. If you're doing something interesting in radio, draw me a line and let me know. I'd love to have a conversation with you right here on the podcast. We are brought to you by Yellow Tech. For broadcasters, podcasters, and content creators, Yellow Tech offers solutions for clean, efficient studios with the Mika mic arms and monitor supports, clear audio like you just heard in that interview with Ben Downs from Yellow Tech's IXM recording microphone and USB sound cards, along with its compact mixer, the Intellimix. To learn more, go to yellowtech.com. And by Shively Labs. Shively Labs is a division of Howell Laboratories. Shively is a proud employee-owned company with over 50 years of expert antenna and filter design and manufacturing. Hope to see you around the NAB New York and AES floors over the next couple of days. Stop by, say hi, maybe we'll even put you on the podcast, and we will be back here with more from New York here on the Top of the Tower podcast.